I think most people would be surprised to know that the Prophet actually did not want to be anywhere near the Kaaba growing up. And that's not because he had a problem with the Kaaba, but because everything that was happening around the Kaaba was everything that the Prophet hated. It was idol worship. It was the place where all the festivals took place. And in those festivals, you had all the obscenities, all the displays that the Prophet did not want to see, all the alcohol, all the boasting about who your tribe was and the blood money and all these things that Rasulullah shunned because of the goodness that Allah had put inside of him. But once the Prophet knew who he actually was, when Allah bestowed the message upon him, then it became clear to him that this place was a special place and his attachment to it as a result of that would grow for the rest of his life. Even the people of Mecca didn't really understand what it was about the Kaaba that was so special. They believed in multiple gods. They didn't really believe in an afterlife. They didn't know what was protecting the Kaaba, but they knew something was protecting the Kaaba because many of them had witnessed Amul Fil. They witnessed the year that Abraha and his army had been destroyed trying to attack the Kaaba. And so there was this general respect for the Kaaba, even by the polytheists, and of course, it became the central location for everything else that they did anyway. And they used the idols to give themselves power and to give themselves a certain status in Arabia. However, five years before the Prophet receives prophethood, so he was 35 years old, there was this flood that came to Mecca and it really damaged the Kaaba. There's also a narration about a woman that wanted to put some incense on the Kaaba and she ended up burning a part of it. So the Kaaba was damaged, the structure was damaged, and they knew they had to reconstruct it. But knowing what happened to Abraha's army, they were afraid of how they would go about that. So they're trying to decide, do we take a part of it and fix it? Do we remove the bricks altogether and then rebuild it? How are we supposed to rebuild the Kaaba? So Al-Walid ibn Mughira, he stands up and it's ironic knowing the wickedness of Al-Walid uh, pointed to in the Quran later on. He said, look, are you people trying to destroy the Kaaba or are you trying to rectify it? Are you Mufsidun or Muslihun? right? The language that we know in the Quran. Are you people that are trying to corrupt or are you trying to rectify? They said, we're just trying to fix the Kaaba. We're trying to repair it. He said, Allah, and of course they refer to Allah amongst all of their other gods. He said, Allah won't destroy the Muslihun. He won't destroy the people that are trying to fix the Kaaba. So he takes an ax himself and he starts to repair the Kaaba. He starts to do away with some of the bricks of the Kaaba. And he says, see, nothing happens. They said, okay, let's wait a whole day and night to make sure that your hand doesn't fall off or lightning doesn't strike you or something terrible doesn't happen to you. So nothing happened to Al-Walid. So they get together and they say, okay, let's rebuild the Kaaba. But Abu Jahl has an announcement. He says, let's only use the pure money that we have earned. So we're not gonna use any of the money that has gone towards gambling, that has gone towards prostitution, that has gone towards alcohol, that has been attained through wronging people, none of the usury or the riba. We just want to use our pure sources of income, which of course would be a problem for them because they didn't have enough then to rebuild the entire Kaaba properly. So they're starting to rebuild the Kaaba and they're saying, Allahumma la nuridu illa khaira. Oh Allah, we only want to do good. Please do not destroy us as we are repairing this Kaaba. And as they rebuilt the Kaaba, the Prophet told Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha years later that your people rebuilt the Kaaba wrong. It used to be a rectangle shape when Ibrahim alayhi salam built it. 
and the door was to the ground so that people could go in the Kaaba and come out. But they ran out of money, so they built it as a cube shape and they raised the door so that only the elites of Quraysh would be able to enter in and they'd be able to govern who was able to go into the Kaaba and who would be prohibited. So they rebuilt the Kaaba wrong, but that was what their money allowed them to do. And of course, the door represented everything else that they did with the idols and with their concept of God at the time and religion at the time. But then came the dispute. Who's going to put Al-Hajar Al-Aswad, the black stone, in its place? Because all of these things that were retained after Ibrahim they maintained some of the status of those things and it was understood Al-Hajar Al-Aswad, the black stone was special. They didn't know what was special about it, but it was special. And whichever tribe was going to take the black stone and put it back was going to have a status that would be unrivaled from that point onwards. So they argue about it. Who's going to be the tribe that gets the honor of putting the black stone there? Some of the tribes, they stake the claim based upon you know, their wealth, based upon their power, based upon their prominence. Some of them claim to be there for a longer time. Some of them said, well, we're usually the ones that serve the people that come for Hajj or come for Umrah. So we should be the ones to do it. So every tribe is making a claim. And it got so intense that by the time a week passed, they were about to fight each other in the Haram. So these tribes were actually now getting their weapons prepared and they were about to turn on each other. Then at that point, a man by the name of Abu Umayyah al-Makhzumi stands up. And this would be the future father-in-law of the Prophet Even though he wouldn't live to see his daughter marry the Prophet this would be the future father-in-law of the Prophet So who is he? Well, I'll give you a clue. He's the father of a woman who helped the Prophet in a similar predicament during Hudaybiyah. And that is Umm Salama radiallahu ta'ala anha who would famously advise the Prophet on what to do when they were unable to move forward for Umrah in Hudaybiyah. So this is Abu Umayyah al-Makhzumi. He's also a very wise man clearly and you can see that Umm Salama radiallahu anha inherited some of that from him. He says, listen, we're not going to solve this amongst ourselves. All the tribes are going to make their claims. But let's agree that the first person to walk through that gate of Bani Shaiba, which is known as Bab al-Salam, whoever comes through that gate, we're going to give them the ability, give them the choice to put the black stone as they see fit. And everyone be pleased with his judgment. So they said, okay, fine, that makes sense. So let's keep it random. So they sat down and they're staring at that gate to see who's going to come through. And Muhammad walks through that gate. He was not a rich man, he was not a powerful man, but Al-Amin Radina. They said, he is the trustworthy one. We're pleased, he is the trustworthy one. We're pleased. They knew the character of the Prophet and so they were happy that the Prophet was going to be the one to carry out that task. Now the Prophet could have made a claim at that point for Banu Hashim. And Banu Hashim had their status in society already and were known for their generosity. He could have said, all right, Banu Hashim, let's do it. And every other tribe, too bad, you agree to the condition. But instead, the Prophet in the spirit that would come in Islam as well, he says, give me a thobe and put it on the ground, a cloth and put it on the ground. And let's place the black stone in the middle of that cloth. And then the Prophet called for every tribal head to come and to grab one side of the cloth. So all of the tribes came together. They picked up the black stone in that cloth and the Prophet said, follow me to the Kaaba. They went to the Kaaba. Rasulullah he picked it up and he put it in his place. And the Prophet did not know at that point that this was the stone from Al-Jannah, the stone from paradise. SubhanAllah, all those narrations would come later. 
but he saved them وسلم, from bloodshed. He saved them from taking that time, which was supposed to be a unifying moment in Mecca and turning into a divisive moment. And the Prophet وسلم, also once again solidified his reputation in society as a man, not just of high moral character, but a man who always wanted good for the entirety of Mecca, not just his people. Now, after that, the Prophet وسلم, he didn't used to do ibadah around the Kaaba. He didn't used to worship around the Kaaba. As we said, he really didn't care for the festivals or the obscenities. He did take part وسلم, in rebuilding the Kaaba because that was a good thing to do. Just like Hilf al-Fudul, the pledge where all of the tribes would agree upon something noble. The Prophet وسلم, goes to the Kaaba for that. But in rebuilding the Kaaba, there is an incident there as well where Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala protects the Prophet وسلم, from something that is not befitting of the Prophet. Rasulullah would put the stones on his back as he was walking to the Kaaba because he did not want to partake in what the others would do, which was to take their bottom cloth and lift it up and hold the stones, thereby exposing their private parts. So the Prophet out of his modesty did not want to expose his private parts, which was common at the time. And as the Prophet is carrying the stones on his back, Al-Abbas says to him, Oh my nephew, why don't you do what everybody else is doing? Just lift up your izar, lift up your bottom garment, put the stones there and it'll protect you from the heat. Just as the Prophet gave into that and he started to do that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala caused the Prophet to fall unconscious. And Allah protected the Prophet from ever exposing his awrah, ever exposing his private parts again, which was a common practice of the people of Mecca. Now, what about after that? When the Prophet receives revelation and the people of Mecca are carrying on with their hajj. Yes, they had a hajj, but it wasn't like our hajj. They had all types of practices, all types of ways of enforcing tribal superiority, all types of innovations. But still, Rasulullah has received revelation at the age of 40 and he knows that the Kaaba is the house that was built by Ibrahim to revive the message of Tawheed of which he would be the reviver of that monotheism. And he's witnessing this on an annual basis. So would the Prophet ﷺ take part in the Hajj? There's a narration from Jubayr ibn Mut'im anhu, who took a long time to become Muslim. He says that in the days of ignorance, he says, He said, I lost one of my camels one time. So I went looking for that camel on the day of Arafah. So I saw the Prophet standing in Arafah. And Quraysh would not go to Arafah. They, they used to send the poor people towards Arafah and they stayed within the Haram. So he was confused why the Prophet was standing in Arafah. And he knew the insistence of their ways. So he said, I thought to myself, what is he doing over here? But I didn't ask him anything at that point. So what do we know about the Prophet Sallallahu Hajj? You might be surprised to know that the Prophet Sallallahu indeed did multiple Hajjs before the Hijrah, before the migration. You have the narration of Jabir ibn Abdullah which says two Hajjs for sure before the migration. And some scholars say that the Prophet Sallallahu did the Hajj every single year between prophethood and the migration. However, he would avoid the things that Quraysh would do, the idol worship and such. Just like the Prophet would do tawaf around the Kaaba, just like he would pray in front of the Kaaba, but he would not pay heed to the idols that were around the Kaaba. So the Prophet would do Hajj on a regular basis, even before the Hijrah. And it was in fact in those last few years in Mecca, 
where one of the most defining incidents of the seerah would happen during the days of Hajj. It was the 11th year after prophethood, the year after Amal Huzn, the year after the year of grief, that the Prophet is going out and he's meeting the various tribes that are coming from outside during the nighttime so that the people of Mecca would not know. And he's introducing them to Islam. He's trying with everybody He's trying with the small tribes, the known tribes, the large tribes, the unknown tribes. He's just going to find anyone that, or he's attempting to find anyone that is going to believe in his message. So he goes out at night and he has with him Abu Bakr and Ali, may Allah be pleased with them. And he talks to these different groups. And suddenly he passes by this group of six young men. And these six young men are there in Mina and they heard the Prophet talking to some of the, the more known tribes. And they were curious about what the Prophet had to say as well, because these six young men were from Yathrib and they had been exposed to Jewish tribes that told them about Tawheed, that told them about monotheism, and that also told them about a prophet that was to come. And so the Prophet sees these six youth from this place called Yathrib, and they're interested in hearing what the Prophet has to say, and the Prophet never overlooks anyone when it comes to da'wah. So the Prophet says to them, are you the allies of the Jews? And they say, yes. He says, well, why don't you sit with me and listen to what I have to say? So there they are in Mina, on the 11th day of the Hijjah, in the 11th year after prophethood. And that conversation with six young men, As'ad ibn Zurara, Awf ibn Harith, Rafi' ibn Malik, Qutbah ibn Amr, Ruqbah ibn Amr, and Jabir ibn Abdullah. That conversation with those six young men was going to change the entire course of history as we have it. The Prophet presents Islam to them. And these six young men, they say, what you're saying makes sense. And the Jews have already told us about a prophet that is to come. Why don't we hasten and believe in you before it gets back to them? And we will go back and call our people to Islam. And they say, may it be through you that Allah reconciles our differences, brings our hearts together and establishes us upon this beautiful message of monotheism that you have brought. And indeed, that would be the society of Al-Madinah.